0: Shalom, you're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 206. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to sit and to study your words again. Lord, we take this time period seriously because we need to put your words of truth inside of us so that your spirit can activate um, those words within us and cause us to to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you um, lord we know that uh, the, um, the 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 way of sanctification is it's a daily walk it's not something we can say well you know i read my bible uh, once last week and i'm good to go no um father we realize that this is something that we need to do on a on a regular basis And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to empower us to take that which you're showing us and put it into practice. We want to live lives that are pleasing to you. We want to turn from sin. We want to be exemplary in our behavior. We want to have the right attitude towards one another, messianic sympathy towards fellow believers. We want to be witnesses to those people around us. There are lots of opportunities for us to share our testimony, but sometimes we're just too timid. We're too... Um, shy. We're not equipped. So give us opportunities, Lord. Help us to be bold, um, open doors uh, of, of ministry for us, continue to bless us and to protect us and to raise us up and to provide for us supernaturally. Help us to live by faith and not by sight, even as we continue to look for the soon return of our Messiah Yeshua. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory Yeshua amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me once again for these live Internet Studies. My name is Aril ben Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Thornton, Colorado, called Kehilatunavah. That's the Harvest Congregation. Be sure to listen to this study in its entirety when it gets uploaded to YouTube in about six days or so. And you can listen to the entire hour-and-a-half-long study, and there'll be a little intermission there in the middle where I give some more information about my own congregation, my own website, and resources. And if you're interested in, in supporting me and helping me, In any way, um, you'll be able to get those details in the middle of that uh, intermission there. But for now, this is a two-part study. It always is. Two segments. First segment is an hour and a half. I'm sorry. First segment is an hour long where we deal with end-time events. The study is officially titled um, Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End-Time Events. And then the second 30-minute study is an apologetic study given to the topic of trinity just like my shema study was last year um it's an apologetic study this is similar to that except now we're going specifically through um bible passages that the biblical unitarians say that we trinitarians are misunderstanding so we're borrowing the um, references from the BiblicalUnitarian.com's website and we're going verse by verse through their list which are trinitarian verses that we trinitarians believe but they say we've been misunderstanding them. So we're going back and looking at those. And the study is entitled um, A Trinitarian Response to Biblical Unitarianism. So I hope you can stick around for um, the entire hour and a half show. If not, um, again, um, at least catch each part one, two, and three for each uh, segment. So let's look at segment one. This is the uh, study on the book of Revelation, basically, but it is a study of end time events. As you know, in order to properly appreciate the book of revelation and to study it and to um better understand it and i'm not saying i have a perfect understanding but i'm not a novice either i've been studying it for about 20 years off and on and um i think i've gotten to the point where i can um get the basic outline and fill in a lot of the details as well there's still some parts of it that 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 are very challenging but um i think if you'll stick with me through the study i don't plan on teaching the study for a year. I'm guessing three months, four months, something like that. That's that's what I'm picturing in my head. If you look at your screen right now, I've got the um, topical schedule pulled up that we're working from. This is a penciled-in schedule, so um, it is subject to modification as I deem uh, necessary. But for now, I haven't made any key changes. We're still in topic three, key scriptural passages. We started last week by looking at some of the key scriptural passages as a as an overview, perspective like Book of Daniel, Matthew chapter 24, um, first and second Thessalonians, uh, book of Revelation. Those are I think four of the ones that I mentioned. But now let's this week begin to turn and look at um some of the passages specifically, some of the chapters. And we're gonna take um a few weeks to go through this part. I'm not gonna hit every passage as you can see on your screen. I've got Several pulled up from the Tanakh, a.k.a. the Old Testament. And i got several pulled up from the Apostolic Scriptures, a.k.a. the New Testament. And as you can see, they're just chapters. They're not even verse references. I don't have time to read all of them. If I did, this study would surely go into a year. But I do want to read significant parts of them. So I went through this week, and I, from this list, I picked out some that I think should be worthy of our careful Uh, review. So we're going to do a lot of Bible reading tonight. If you didn't bring your Bible, no worries. Just watch the screen and I'll bring up the Bible for us and I'll read it. Um, And then we'll talk as we go. Um, What we're going to find as we're reading through our scriptures here with a view towards Revelation, right? Keep in mind that Revelation, if you look in my lower right corner, it says book of Revelation. And if if I go back to the um, topic uh, schedule here, you'll see that when we get to topic eleven and twelve, we're actually diving right into the book of Revelation. But we've got all these preliminary topics to hit, such so, you know Daniel's 70th week, rapture views, um, mystery Babylon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the reason we're doing the preliminary topics is so that we can be kind of prepped. We can have our mind kind of geared. It's it's um, um, it's a, a, a prep material to familiarize us with uh, some of the topics that the book of Revelation is going to uh, going to deal with. Indeed. As I have come to understand it, the book of Revelation is a summary uh, and the final say of everything that came before it. Right? It takes really what what God already laid down in the very very beginning of the book of Genesis, which we're going to see here in a moment, and He comes full circle and starts telling John things that are going to happen at the very end of history um, of this era. And so it's fitting that we start at the beginning so that we can understand the end. But it's also fitting that we work our way from Uh, chronologically as it were from the earliest parts of the Bible towards the book of revelation, rather than jumping straight into the book of revelation and expecting to be able to understand it. And in fact, you will find that if you read through the book of revelation, that there are so many either direct or semi direct quotes from um, passages out of the Tanakh that your head's going to start spinning, trying to figure them out unless you have Kind of the background already and appreciation of the language and the the um the the topical aspects that are uh already given in the prophets so let's start from there before we do that, what I wanted to let you know is that there's a there's a major theme that shows up in the book of revelation, a major topic that shows up uh, when we're looking at end time study and it's a very important topic that oddly enough every true believer probably will not have to experience firsthand. And yet he should be aware of it because of the way the prophets deal with it and because of the way national Israel is going to have to contend with this particular topic. And the topic is known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. We're going to look at this phrase tonight as a kind of an introductory topic as we move into some of these um, passages. Um, Really, as I have read through the book of Revelation, and we're going to turn right to this, so just bear with me. I have found that the entire Bible is basically a story of of the conflict between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. We already know it's not an equal fight, right? This is not dualism where we've got two equal opponents who are are both um, equally powerful going at it. That's not what's going on. It's not yin versus yang or black versus white in that respect, but it is a cosmic struggle of all that is holy and righteous represented by God and his people and his land and his laws and precepts and etc., And his Messiah, obviously, and versus uh, Satan who rebelled against God, you know, very, very early, early, early. And he rebelled against God and drew third of, of the angels with him, the demon, what we now know as the demons. And they now oppose all that is godly and righteous and good and holy and um so the devil has been doing whatever he can for the last depending on if you're a, sh- sh- a young earth or a long or an old earth or I'm a young earther myself so I think about 6000 years myself. Um the devil's been doing his best to destroy God's program, God's kingdom, God's image, right? Uh, the devil attacks mankind in general, but the devil attacks the Jewish people specifically because he knows that the Jewish people have been singled out by God to enjoy special revelation and that um, the Messiah is going to come and establish a kingdom in Israel and sit on the seat of David, his father, his ancestor. And so if the devil can um, destroy the Jewish people, he can destroy uh, Yeshua's kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom, before it even comes to pass. So what does the devil do? He attacks the Jewish people. He attacks um, God's laws. He attacks uh, genuine belief and such. But in so doing, he also attacks um, the places that God says are uh important and so it's no secret that when you look through the bible and you read through the bible that you encounter israel and the jewish people right in the torah but you also encounter jerusalem and the temple and so this city goes by a few different nicknames Mount zion right the city of david and things like that um this city is special to god it's unique to god it's the place where god chose to um put his name to to concentrate his glory, and ultimately, when Messiah comes back, he's going to rule and reign from Mount Zion, i.e., from Jerusalem. And so, we could say that it's no wonder that this place is deemed as the holiest place on earth. But it's also one of the places that has that has seen the most conflict in of all of all, um, cities in all the world. Right? It's it's been there have been more wars fought over that little piece of real estate in the Middle East than any other place in the world, and for good reason. So. When we look at Jerusalem in the Bible, we have to also recognize that Satan has from the earliest times, I believe also established a kind of what we might call um headquarters, a place where he seems to concentrate a lot of his attention or a certain place in the world. Now we know his wickedness is all over the world now, um but it wasn't always that way, right. So what I'm going to introduce to us uh, is a theme that I picked up from another teacher. I didn't make this up on my own, but I thought it was fairly uh, accurate myself. What we're going to see when we get to the book of Revelation, particularly as we're drawing down towards the end of the age, and we're going to see uh, the Jewish people in Israel and Jerusalem in focus once again as we look at the last seven years of, of, of humanity for this era. We're going to see that Satan is going to once again elevate his efforts to take his counterfeit Jerusalem, right, his false Jerusalem, his his headquarters at the war, and oppose God and God's city. So this is really, you ready for it, a tale of two cities. Yeah, like Charles Dickens said, it's a tale of two cities. The two cities, in my understanding, are Jerusalem and Babylon. And we're going to see this theme show up, not just in the prophets, but we're going to see it show up in the book of Revelation predominantly as well. Why do I pick Babylon? Why do I pick Babylon? because it's the one of the earliest um mega cities right what we call city state where it's a a, a city that's that has its own uh, autonomy that that self governs um that that seeks to um kind of exalt itself and magnify itself. Just like there's three um, city states in the earth today. There's Vatican City. There's Monaco. And then there's Singapore. I think those are the three that are only existence. But back in, early, early, very early on, we're going to see in the book of Genesis there was an early city state, a, a, a mega city with a mega tower that we goes by the name of Babel later on, Babylonia later on, um, uh, uh, Babel, Babylon itself. So it's the very first Babylon that shows up in the Bible. And it seems apparent to me that given the description that that Moshe gives it in Genesis here that we're going to read, that it became a prominent um, kind of city for Satan or and, and or evil to kind of park out and camp out there. And this evil spread around the world, obviously, right? Everywhere in the world now we have false religions and cults and demonic oppression and darkness and and murder and, and uh, violence and anything that opposes God and the biblical worldview. That's everywhere in the world now. But very early on in the Bible, it seems to have had some point of origin. It seems to have kind of sprouted from somewhere, and it became even so bad that God himself came down from heaven to see what these guys were doing and decided to put a stop to it. But that didn't stop Satan from spreading this wickedness around the world in various languages and various false religions and various um, uh, um, uh, uh, ideologies and, and, and I, uh, um, 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 just, just wickedness that's everywhere in the world now. Someday God has to judge that wicked system and that wicked system is going to coalesce once again in a certain part of the world. And I believe that Babylon could fit the bill for being that particular place. So once again, we will we'll end up with this tale of two cities. We have Jerusalem versus Babylon, as it were. The light versus darkness. Um, the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God, as typified by these two cities. So a tale of two cities. Or if you're a Garfield fan, if you're a cat lover, then it's a tale of two kitties, right? Okay. All right. I saw this movie, A Tale of New Kitties. It was actually quite funny. It's a little older movie, but I mean, it's still not too bad. All right. So let's begin to look at this theme, the Day of the Lord real quick. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to start looking at some of the scriptures, but it's necessary to um, kind of familiarize you with this concept of Day of the Lord. So um, what I've got is a few, uh, about three graphics pulled up real quick that we're just going to glance at. This is a graphic that I got from um, a book can't remember the name of the book, but, um, the point of interest here is if you can see on your screen, kind of in the right side of the screen, there's a section known as the day of the Lord. This is a picture of the last seven years plus, um, 30 days plus 45 days. But basically the the bulk of the image you're looking at on your screen is the last seven years of mankind's um, dealings on planet Earth before God finally brings down full weight of his judgment and ushers in what we might call the thousand-year millennial kingdom that you see on the far right slice of your screen. This last seven years is neatly divided into two sections, three and a half years on your left, three and a half years on your right. And in that right section of the three and a half years, we can divide that section in half as well, cut right down the middle with that arrow pointing up called the rapture. And then looking to the right of that, we can see these little, seven little things that look like yellow ducks, but they're not. When you look at them closely, they're actually um, uh, uh, bowls. I'm sorry, they're trumpets. They're shofars, actually. They're shofars. Um, they look like ducks to me, but they're actually shofars. There's seven of them. And then that's the day, that's the beginning of the day of the Lord uh, in that time period. And then there's another arrow pointing up on the right side. Um, I can't even read it off the, let me see here. Uh, two witnesses, okay, um two witnesses are resurrected, and then there's a little white horse kind of in the upper right corner, and then down below that there's seven little purple things. those shapes are bulls so um from a glance, there are seven seals, those are the red things, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then there are seven trumpets, those are the yellow ones, chofars, really, but trumpets uh there's seven of those. The yellow things, and then the purple on the right side. There's seven bowls, and so taken together, we can see that there's this black section called the Day of the Lord, and this is a major theme, not just in the Book of Revelation, but it's in the in the prophets as well. And the Day of the Lord is essentially this time period near the end of the this era, where God is going to judge the wicked of humanity, among other things, but He's also going to refine those who would. Name the name of God, but only superficially. This would include either um what we might call compromising Christians or dead Christians who can't who have the potential to become um genuine Christians, but currently they're compromising or dead. I, I assume again when I say compromising, it's hard to say are they really believers or not? Only God knows. But God will use this time period to begin to refine them bringing judgment on many of them, but also refining them in the process. But more importantly, for national Israel who has not yet accepted Jesus as Savior, then this will be a time period that is the final part period known as Jacob's trouble. It's mentioned about in the prophets. And it's a time period when God is going to begin to open their eyes and pour out mercy and grace on them, but not all of them. According to the book of Revelation and, and certain prophets, we're looking at probably two-thirds of national Israel being laid to waste. God's judgment is going to come down because they've rejected his son. and um, But he will, he will have mercy and compassion. So the important part to remember, before I even jump into the scriptures, I'm going to kind of spoil the, th- the whole thing for you. No matter which verses you read through the Bible, no matter which passages you read, no matter which books you read, there's an important overall theme that you need to remember God will have his way. God will always redeem his people in the very end. Whether you're reading through the Exodus story, like we just finished reading in our Torah portion readings, right? We're in the Parashat, the Bashalak, I believe right now, for this Shabbat. Um... We just finished reading through um the, the Exodus accounts, right? The Passover stories. And you you know the end of the story there, right? The people make it through the Red Sea with Moses and they go on and journey on to the promised land, right? To put Mount Sinai and receive Torah and then on to the promised land. So the the it's good news for God's people because the end of the story in the book of Exodus is that the people make it out of bondage. They and, and Egypt, which is a type and shadow of sin and Satan's kingdoms, gets destroyed. Right, God judges Egypt and God judges the gods of Egypt, and judges the Pharaoh, and all of those um, who are opposed to God and His Messiah figure, Moses. So the end of that story is God rescues His people from um, the the darkness and the tribulation and the, the the judgment if they will place their trust in Him. Well, when you fast forward all the way to the Book of Revelation, you'll end up with the same concept: the Day of the Lord is a day of judgment or uh, the wickedness of all humanity, but it's it's a righteous judgment because God has to judge wickedness because wickedness has persecuted righteousness for so long, and so it's it's only right that God brings judgment on on those who have persecuted um, God's people. And the end of the story, if you read through the in last few chapters of Revelation, is we get to go into not just the millennial time period with Yeshua, but we eventually go into on to uh, on into eternity. So. The, the end of the story is good if you're a, a genuine believer in God, i.e. A, a genuine follower of Messiah. Let's look at another graphical okay. kick. We've seen this before as well. I believe I have showed it to you. In the multiple rapture views that we're going to be talking about in this study, the study, there's four main views that that when we talk about rapture. There's a fifth one, actually, that I haven't mentioned just yet Um, uh, that deals with the Exodus story in the book of Exodus, right? It's called the Greater Exodus, Mentioned in Jeremiah in two spots. We might even look at those passages tonight. But I haven't mentioned, I don't have it listed in these charts just yet because it's going to kind of be its own separate uh, topic. I need to add it to my list of topics there. But for now, we've got the four kind of um, Protestant evangelical or even, um, yeah, I'll say Protestant evangelical because Catholics aren't really big on talking about rapture either. This is more of a Protestant evangelical. Preoccupation. There's four main kind of views. There's pre-trip rapture, mid-trip rapture, post-trip rapture, and pre wrath And the reason why we're we're interested in these um, themes of rapture, we're talking about the snatching away of God's people before some bad stuff happens, is because based on your perspective of where you place the rapture, you either will experience the wrath of God, i i.e. the um, uh, day of the Lord, or you'll be saved from it. I am a um, pre rather the one at the very bottom of this particular graphic. Um, I believe that we will, we as believers will go through the birth pangs, which is the first three and a half years of the 70th week, and we'll go through Satan's wrath, that middle point there on my graphic where it's in red, where it says wrath of Satan. We'll go through that as well. We will be part of the martyred. Um, I mean, we might live, don't, don't get me wrong, but... Predominantly, Satan will turn his wrath against um, Israel and those who name the name of Messiah. So that's Jewish people as well as um, genuine Christians. Anyone who refuses to bow down to him, uh, worship his Antichrist, worship his false Messiah, worship uh, his image, take the mark of the beast, et cetera, et cetera. He's going to go after those people. Revelation chapter twelve and following. And um, uh, but the rapture is going to cut short his tri- his wrath going to cut that tribulation time period that what what um the bible calls the great tribulation it'll cut that short that's that big question mark right there in the middle of the pre-wrath and then right after that on the same day back to back as far as i can ascertain the wrath of god aka the day of the lord will commence so the rapture of the church and the day of the lord are back to back events and they're in that order the rapture comes first followed immediately on the heels by the day of the lord which is also known as the wrath of god and then if you follow the arrows to the right we can see that there's that yellow slice known as the kingdom which is the millennial kingdom the thousand year period i take it to be literal some people don't but um the thousand year period of um living with yeshua here on planet earth so that's another graphic that we can begin to uh, uh we'll begin to explore later on Final graphic here. This one's from a book known as the Saints, Go, the, 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 the Saints Go Up, The Wrath Comes Down. I think that's the name of the book. I got this from a good friend of mine who still lives back in Colorado. And um, she shared this graphic with me. And it's um it's the same thing as the one we just saw and the other two. Uh, seven years, time slice. First three and a half years, beginning of birth pangs. Midpoint. And then final three and a half years, broken up into two main sections. The Great Tribulation, which is the wrath of Satan right after the midpoint and then cut that right down the middle and that last final quarter is the day of the lord's wrath or the day of the lord or the wrath of god etc etc so um that's really the kind of a big theme that we're going to be seeing in the book of revelation but we're also going to see it in the prophets remember according to what i can ascertain the rapture itself predominantly deals with the gentile christian church obviously every true believer names the name of Messiah, whether you're Jewish or not, is part of the true church. And yet, because the bringing in of the Gentiles into the people of God was a mystery that God withheld from Israel's attention through the Tanakh, then it makes sense also that the rapture is a bit of a mystery. When you go and survey all the uh, scriptures that we're going to be doing in the Tanakh, you're going to find that the rapture is a hard and difficult topic to locate in the Old Testament. But that's for good reason. It's because it falls under the category of that which God hid from national Israel only to be revealed during the times of the Gentiles or the bringing in of the Gentile peoples into the family of God. This this gap between the 483 years of Daniel's 490 years and the final 70th, uh, 70th week, the final seven years. There's a gap now that was created um, in hindsight, we realize that the gap was not um, was not um, plan B. It was actually plan A, because God promised Abraham all along that through you all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. That was way back in Genesis chapter 12. So we know when Paul talks about these Gentiles that are being brought in, As a mystery right in the book of Ephesians and and Romans and things like that, that Paul simply talking about a truth that God hid from the people of Israel, but yet on God's books, it was always there. And now it's been almost 2000 years since this gap has been present. And yet, when it comes to Israel this time period known as um, the Day of the Lord is going to bring Israel's as a people group in focus sharply. And that's why when we go back and look at the prophets of old that we're going to be doing here and starting out with tonight, we're going to see a lot of language that's relegated to um, judgment uh, of Israel, of national Israel, but not final judgment in the sense that God's going to wipe them out. Rather, it's a refinement judgment. It's a type of judgment where God... Judge them for their sin and idolatry and wickedness and rejection of Yeshua. But at the same time, he pours out mercy and grace to them and brings a, a, a remnant of them into, uh, into the kingdom uh, uh, with his son, Yeshua. So that's a theme that we have to be careful. This is, by the way, in marked difference to God judging the wickedness of the world. Remember when he talked about a tale of two cities or a tale of two kitties? Babylon and Jerusalem, if you follow the same carefully through the entire Bible, Babylon, Jerusalem, in fact, if you do a Google, Google search, if you do a, um, a word search for the names Jerusalem and Babylon in, a, in a, an electronic version of a Bible concordance, you're going to find that Jerusalem is the most named city in the Bible for good reason, right? It's the one that God singled out to be the location where he's going to concentrate his presence and his glory and his dwelling, right? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. His temple is there. His presence dwells there. His manifest presence is is located in Jerusalem. At the same time, the second most mentioned city in the Bible, is you ready for it? Babylon. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Why? Because of the prominent spot that she plays in a type and shadow and a place for Satan to park his wickedness. And so I believe that if we we run with this theme, the tale of two cities, that we're going to find that in terms of Jerusalem, even though God just seems like he is absolutely discarding her, giving up on her, divorcing her, and judging her mercilessly i mean we're gonna we're gonna read passages here in the in the talk that are just absolutely brutal the language is just you know god's um judgment that he's pouring out on Israel for her idolatry, her wickedness um her rejection of him et cetera et cetera. and yet every prophet that I've read so far always ends with a note of god saying and yet there will be a remnant and yet i'll restore to israel and yet i'll restore jerusalem and yet i'll rebuild jerusalem and mount zion etc et in other words at the end of every the, every one of the prophets that that we might think are doom and gloom right and we're talking about some heavy hitters like isaiah jeremiah um ezekiel daniel um, and some of the minor prophets as well you know joel micah zephaniah um, we're going to find that they Um, prophesied to Israel that there will be a coming judgment, the day of the Lord. And yet they also prophesied that there will be a restoration of Israel at the very end. And the the, the way that God uses this uh, theme of day of the Lord judgment is he pours it through their exile judgment language. Remember Israel played the harlot um, twice significantly. And God used Assyria to uh, uh, capture Israel. Uh, Israel, the northern tribes, and and haul them off. And then, uh, you know, merely 200 years later or so, uh, less than 200 years later, he used um, Babylon to uh, destroy Jerusalem and the the temple and to uh, take captive uh, Judah, right? The southern kingdom or the Jewish people. So um, God uses that time during the prophets to get their attention when they're in captivity to explain to them that I'm going to bring you back into your land But this will only be a partial fulfillment of my judgment and a partial fulfillment of my bringing you back and restoring you. The the fullest measure of the judgment and the restoration has to be future because of the language that we're going to be seeing here doesn't fit with um, the description of what happened in the 70-year exile. But there's one last thing I want to mention, then I'll jump right into the, the passages, and that's this. When you read all the prophecies about God judging Israel, the final note is always a note of hope and restoration and god saying that i will not cast you off forever i'm punishing you for your wickedness for your idolatry for your har- harlotry and oh yes the word harlotry and 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 um uh um prostitute in those words if you do a word search for those israel is the prime um indicator of those words harlot and 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 idolatry and things like that it's no she's 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 the main player but that's because um she's god's chosen bride right that doesn't mean that the wicked nations of the world are not also harlots they are but what we're going to find out is that even though god judges his wife and severely punishes her in the end he always restores her he always reconciles himself back to her because of his love and his mercy and mercy wins out over judgment. I think there's a verse that mentions that. I'll throw, up in po- throw it up in post-production if I can find it. God always brings his people back. He doesn't completely wipe them out and destroy them. But, but, you ready for this? And this is in a very important but. By comparison, the wicked nations of the world, the wicked kingdoms that are listed by name in the prophets, and most importantly, Babylon, who is the wicked counterpart to Jerusalem, right? Tale of two cities. Babylon is not given any promise of restoration. And I'm pausing, letting the silence kick in. That's because Babylon is judged in its finality. And that's it. But when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, there is no resurrection of Babylon. There's no restoration of Babylon. There's no new Babylon that comes, descends out of heaven. There's only the new Jerusalem. Understand? So in the end, in the tale of two cities, only one of those cities survives and goes on even into the millennium and goes on even into eternity. And this is going to bear relevance for us when we have this discussion about who is Mystery Babylon in the book of Revelation? Who is Mystery Babylon the Great, right? There are a lot of candidates, but we have to keep this idea of two cities in mind if we're going to correctly understand who Mystery Babylon truly is. All right. Having said all that, let's jump into some of the verses. The first uh, passages I want to look at are all in the book of Revelation. So we're going to start actually in the book of Revelation. Look at where this word wrath shows up. Wrath of God. This is a theme that's associated with the day of the Lord. It's the wrath of God. The Greek word is orge, from where we get our English word orgy. And it is this intense, focused action of God to pour out his final judgment on wickedness. And all of humanity is under the judgment of God at at some point in time, not just um, backsliding Israel and and compromising Christians and and spiritually dead Christians and things like that. Eventually, all of wicked humanity must be judged. That's because ever since, we're going to see this here in a moment, ever since the days of creation when mankind fell into sin, mankind has been practicing sin, and sin deserves judgment. And so God judged the world once with Noah, wiped everybody out, and started the whole thing all over again. He hit the reset button. But it didn't take too long, as we're going to read here in a moment, for Noah's descendants to climb off the ark, break up into, uh, into their respective families, and clump together and start building wicked cities and towers all over again. And then wickedness spread around the earth until God put a stop to it. With the confusing of the languages but that didn't deter satan um it didn't stop him eventually god knew that right it didn't get the better of god he just kept taking his wickedness wherever else he went but the wrath of god that's going to be poured out in the book of revelation is a time period that we as believers have been assured uh we're going to see this in in uh in the new testament passages we've been assured that this wrath is not going to be poured out on us we should be spared this wrath why? Because of the um, the fact that Yeshua has rescued us from the wrath of God. There's an ultimate judgment that comes in, 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 in the sense of spiritual death, separation from God, but that's in eternity. All of humanity who rejects God is going to ultimately suffer eternal separation from God, and that is a judgment from God. But before then, God is going to pour out judgments on the earth that are going to affect living humans. And the earth itself is just going to reel and totter back and forth. And there are going to be earthquakes and hailstones and fire and blood and, and locusts and, and dragons and right and lions and tigers and bears. right? And, um, and literally all hell is going to be breaking loose on planet earth when God uh, rains his wrath down uh, uh, before the time period of the millennium. So let's begin to look at some of these verses. Revelation 6.16 And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall in us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. What's this all about? Well, we're going to find out eventually when we get to the book of Revelation that the they who are talking are the unbelievers. This is actually a description of people who see the sign of the end of the age in the sky with the darkness of the, the, the cosmic lights turned out, the sun not shining, the moon not giving its brilliance, the scars falling from the sky and thus with, with, the entire universe kind of lights out. Suddenly this brilliance of the coming of the Lord will get their attention and they'll begin to realize that this is a sign of the end for them. And the wrath of the lamb is about to be poured out. You can see it there. It even says wrath of the lamb, which is a really interesting feature because the wrath of God is the day of the Lord, the day of the God or the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord itself shows up about 20 times um, in that phrase, uh, the day of the Lord. I think it shows up about 20 times in the Bible. I'm sorry, in the, in the uh, Tanakh, and another, like uh, I think, uh, four or five or six times in the New Testament. But um, the wrath of God is synonymous with the wrath of the Lamb in this very first verse. We keep reading in Revelation 6, 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. Their wrath? Well, in the previous verse, it's hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, that's the father, and from the wrath of the lamb, that's the son, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand. Moving along in Revelation, we see, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. I believe, if I'm correct, um, this is what we might call the Bema Seat Judgment, uh, in the book of Revelation, right around uh, Revelation 11, because from my understanding of the chronology, the bema seat judgment is a is a reward time given to the saints. There are no unbelievers at the bema seat, therefore it's a reward only for those who have finished the race. The word bema there is borrowed from um, ancient Roman games, where the uh, winner would go up to the uh, climb up to the, the elevated. Uh, Podium, the BEMA and receive his medal, his gold, silver, or bronze medal, depending on which place he made. Right. We see this in the Olympics now or modern day Olympics. That's the BEMA seat where we got the people kind of climb up to the, to the dais or the podium. I, I say climb up, but you know what I mean? They go up the stairs or whatever. Um, that I believe is, uh, something that takes place, uh, in heaven. I could be wrong. It might be on earth, but I'm pretty sure it's in heaven. And it takes place, um, uh, uh, after the rapture, but before the wrath of God is poured out. Um, the nations were enraged. your wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged. That might be that, or this might be the overview of the, um, either the sheep and goat judgment, uh, that's prior to the millennium. I, but I'm I'm just looking at one verse here, so don't don't throw me under the bus if I uh, got the the, the 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 which judgment is wrong. But I'm um, just looking at the wrath for now. Revelation twelve twelve. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on, on, in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Notice let me go back and look at one of those graphics. Notice the wrath of Satan is something that's poured out on everyone who refuses to worship him and give him. Uh, honor and, and glory as supposedly God, but it's poured out after the midpoint of the week. In other words, the wrath the wrath of Satan is synonymous with what the Bible calls the great tribulation. But I don't believe that the wrath of Satan is synonymous with the um, birth pangs. So if we look at one of those other charts, the beginning of birth pangs at the earlier part of the week, the end of years, is simply that, the beginning of birth pains, like the mom going into labor um, but she's not had the baby yet. So in using that analogy of birth pangs, we could say that the baby is is the kingdom that's born at the far right of your screen, but the birth pangs are at the, at the far left side. So that first two and a half years is not the wrath of Satan. And why would it be? Because he needs to deceive the entire world into thinking that he's a man of peace, a man of safety, a man of promises. He's going to break his word at the midpoint of the week, and that's when all hell is going to break out. So um looking at that uh, verse, it's the wrath of Satan, and he knows he only has a short time because his um he has either three and a half years or he has even half that amount because his wrath is going to be cut short by the um by not just the rapture of the saints, but by the beginning of the day of the Lord itself. Let's keep reading. Revelation 14, 10. Uh, He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. I'm not sure who the he is at the moment. I'd have to read the entire uh, chapter, but which I'm not going to turn to at the moment. We're simply just looking at some of the wrath passages that show up in the book of Revelation as we begin to develop this theme of the day of the Lord at the end of the age. Moving along, 1419, So the angel swung a sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Again, this imagery of um, of reaping and trampling grapes and um, pressing out grape juice uh, for the purpose of um, making wine or grape juice, etc. In this uh, example, when it talks about the great winepress of God, um, it's a picture of God. Um, pouring out wrath on the earth. And it's not grape juice that's being squirted out. It's a little bit more graphic than that. It's blood. So um, we're going to find that out when we start reading more and more passages. Revelation 15:1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. And so my understanding, let me go back to one of those um, uh, graphics for you. My understanding is that when we look at this seven year slice of last, last seven years of history for mankind, for this era, the first three and a half years is not the wrath of Satan, nor is it the wrath of God It's simply the birth, the beginnings of birth pangs or the world in chaos like this um, chart calls. And so for that reason, since it's the beginning of bad things that are beginning to happen in the world, everybody will go through it. Believer and unbeliever alike, Jew and Gentile alike, will all go through that. It's not until the beginning of the Great Tribulation, at the midpoint of the week, that Satan will begin to focus his intense wrath on uh, Israel and on um, Christians, Uh, particularly those two groups. In fact, they're singled out in Revelation chapter twelve as the um, the offspring of the woman who in Revelation 12 is, is Israel, and those who keep the testimony of Jesus. That would be, of course, believers, Christians, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. The point I'm trying to make is that I believe that not only will everyone in the world go through the um, first three and a half years of uh, birth, beginnings of birth pangs, but also everyone in the world will go through the Great Tribulation to some extent, um, Satan will be, I mean, because Jewish people are, are are everywhere in the world and believers are everywhere in the world. So persecution from Satan will be everywhere in the world. There won't be anywhere where there will be an exemption from the wrath of Satan during that short time period that, that on this chart is characterized by seal number five and seal number six. But what I do want to make sure that you, you, you understand from my understanding, from my perspective of reading through end time scriptures is that genuine believers, i.e. the church, uh, the body of Messiah, absolutely will not go through the wrath of God. We will not go through the day of the Lord as far as I can tell. Now, of course, there are those who disagree with me. The pre-tribbers say we're not even going to go through the birth pangs, and which means by default, sequentially, we're not going to go through the wrath of Satan, nor will we go through the wrath of God, because the pre-tribbers believe that the entire seven years is the wrath of God, a.k.a. the tribulation. I disagree with them. The mid-tribbers are closer to the pre-wrath view that I hold to. They say, we're going to go, everybody's going to go through half the bad stuff. And then only those who remain after the rapture are going to have to go through the rest of the bad stuff. And notice that it gets, it grows in intensity. From the birth pangs, it starts out kind of relatively light, if you want to call it that. And moves, uh, it increases in intensity when it comes to um, worldwide disruption, judgments, uh, um, you know, um, all kinds of uh, demonic activity that will begin increasing and things like that. So, um, as we move along the scale chronologically from the beginning of the seven years towards the end, it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, post-tribbers say, everybody, believers and unbelievers, Jews and Gentiles, we're all going to go through all of it. All of the birth bangs, all of the wrath of Satan, and all of the wrath of God. And we're not going to get raptured until the final, final end. And that's similar almost to the... Um, uh, to the um, the uh, a greater Exodus perspective that I'm gonna talk about in weeks to come, a view that is popular among many messianic groups, um, that sees the people of God and the people of Satan or the 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 good guys and the bad guys all going through a bunch of bad stuff, but God supernaturally protecting his people in the midst of all the bad stuff. Uh, but yet the deliverance uh out of the land or into the promised land doesn't take place till the final end of the story, right? The end of the Exodus story. So the post-trib view is similar to that. If if, if I'm understanding the, um, um, uh, uh, greater Exodus view, but my understanding of the pre-wrath, again, I'm going to te- this is what I'm going to be teaching during this revelation study is pre-wrath perspective, because that's the view that I hold to. And, um, in the pre-wrath view, we're only going to go, we as believers are going to go through the, uh, uh, the first part of the three and a half, uh, uh, beginning of birth pangs. We'll have to go through all those first uh, four, three or four seals. Um, we will have to go through the wrath of Satan. We might lose our lives then. We might be kept alive. I mean, we might be preserved. It depends. There's no promise either way. But the point is, we'll have to go through that time period. But then the rapture will take place because the intensity of Satan's wrath will be so, so, so heated that in Yeshua's own words, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So Yeshua, uh, God's going to shorten the day of the, the wrath of Satan's days, cut that great tribulation short. He's not going to cut the three and a half years short. He's only going to cut the the intense persecution from Satan short by his um, rapture of the saints and the simultaneous pouring out or initiation of the day of the Lord, which is the wrath of God. Uh, that you can see on your chart. So going back to uh, this chart here, let's continue looking at wrath in the book of Revelation. Uh, in Revelation 15, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Remember the bowls are the last of the seven bad stuff, uh, sequential bad things that are going to happen. The the wrath of God that's poured out in that final uh, uh, cluster near the end of the, uh, the 70th week there. The seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Which, again, is the final, this is the culmination of God's judgment on Satan's wickedness, Satan's wicked kingdoms, and all of those who are unrepentant. But at the same time, God has um, already begun to refine and bring Israel uh, into a supernatural place of protection. Not all Israel, but just a remnant to be supernaturally protected through that time period. And so that they can uh, meet their Messiah when he stands on the Mount of Olives and they can uh go together uh into the kingdom eventually uh which perfectly mirrors the um uh the Exodus story in the book of Exodus. Uh, Revelation 16.1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. What's really neat about the book of Revelation, we're going to find this out, is that when John is recording what Yeshua gave to him, remember this is the revelation of Yeshua, it's not the revelation of John, it's the revelation of Yeshua as recorded by John. What's really neat is that John is careful to give uh, not only chronology markers, like he'll say, and then I heard, and then I heard, or after this, I saw, et cetera, et cetera. He not only does that, but he also tells us what, where he's seeing what he's seeing. He'll say, I, I saw in heaven, or I saw a voice from the temple. He's not talking about the temple on earth. He's talking about the temple in heaven. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple in heaven. I'm inserting that because we already read about that earlier in the context when we get to it. Saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth. That kind of makes sense. Uh, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. You're pouring out, the the activity is taken, the bowls are in heaven because they're in God's hands and they're being poured out onto the earth. That's the recipient of the the pouring out. When you pour a bowl, the contents of the bowl out, uh, gravity dictates that the contents go down. And so it's like a, A picture of the the, the judgment pouring down from heaven down to earth. And why a bowl? Some people have asked me, Hey Ariel, why do you think that the the book of Revelation uses trumpets, uses seals, and uses bowls? According to um, most prophecy teachers, the the word for bowl in the uh, uh, book of Revelation that's being described here is a dish that's very wide and um, not very deep almost like a a a pet's dish that you pour water into it's it's wide um and not very deep so that the pet can stick his head down and and lap it up with his tongue it's the same kind of bowl it's so that the contents can be poured out rapidly in one motion one one flick of the wrist and all that water is dumped out unlike say a bottle if you were to fill a bottle up with a with a long thin neck like a coke bottle or something like that and turn it over it would take a while for the water to to, 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 to to pour out of the bottle right there's a chugging action um and it doesn't pour out rapidly but when we read through the book of revelation and we find out that God is pouring his wrath out there's the picture of this rapid uh, pouring out the judgments are happening very quickly and very um intensely right it's that's that's why the 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 it's a bowl so 1619 uh, the book of Revelation the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nation fell Babylon the great hey there's Babylon again was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath God's pouring out judgment on Babylon the great we're gonna find out in weeks to come that this Babylon the great could be Jerusalem yeah, it very might well be Jerusalem, eschatological Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem that the Antichrist has co-opted and take over, taken over and set up at his headquarters. Yeah, that could be Babylon here. But we're going to find out that there's also support that Babylon here could be. Are you ready for it? Rebuilt Babylon. Yeah, that works too. Um, there's no reason why it couldn't be. I mean, we're still talking about eschatological, a future Babylon that hasn't been built yet, or maybe it's built, but it's not named Babylon, right? If you go pull up a map, maybe eschatological Babylon is actually in reality today named, say, um, Dubai or Qatar or um, you know Vatican City or or uh, uh, um, Kuwait. City or some some somewhere near a, a dominant water source because the the description in the, in the book of Revelation is a kind of a seaport activity, a giant great city. But either way, is the point it could be a city that's already in existence. But when the Antichrist shows up, he could just say, you know what, I'm going to take that city as my own, make it, make it my headquarters, and rename it Babylon. We don't have to wait for ancient Babylon to be rebuilt or even Neo Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon in the book of Daniel. We don't have to wait for that to be rebuilt, even though currently it is inhabited by, last time I checked, I think like what, five five 500,000 people? Anyway, moving along. Revelation 19.15, the final verse uh, where we're going to look at the word wrath here is Revelation 19.15, from the mouth, from his mouth, this is Yeshua, by the way, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it, he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with the rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. If I remember correctly, at this point in the book of Revelation, this is a description of um, the battle known as the Battle of Armageddon, where um, Satan and God uh, have this final showdown in a slice of real estate in the Middle East that's about 60 miles north, slightly northwest of Jerusalem today, um, but could also include parts of uh, the land immediately uh to the east of uh Israel known as Jordan today um and things like that so uh, uh basically almost depending on if you take the numbers literally which there's no reason not to it could almost be the entire middle east just surrounding Israel Jerusalem and Mount Zion where all of Satan, satan's armies are massed together to take to make one final effort to try and overthrow um the kingdom of god and god's people and destroy Uh, Israel and Jerusalem will destroy God's people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's what's going on right there. All right, we've got about five minutes left. Let me begin to entertain this idea of the tale of two cities, like I mentioned about, or uh, let me flash those two things on the screen again. A tale of two cities, Babylon versus Jerusalem, right? The big showdown at the end of the age. Satan's wicked city versus God's righteous city. Um, A tale of two cities, or for all you cat lovers out there, a tale of two kitties. All right, um, when we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, we can see this cosmic conflict um, uh, as is promised, as is um, foretold in the book uh, in the, one of the most famous uh, first messianic prophecies in the Bible, Genesis 3, 15. God says, and I will make enemies of you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, right? Satan in serpent form. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, and of your offspring and her descendant, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel, period, and stop. What's God saying? That that right at the very beginning, right, the only two people in existence right now are Adam and Eve, and yet at this very early stage, God is foretelling that throughout man's history, because from the time period of here, Adam and Eve, all the way up to Messiah, we're still looking at, I mean, right, uh, 4,000... Years haven't happened yet, right? Human history hasn't been played out yet. But God knows the end from the beginning because he's God. I'm going to make enmity or enemies between you, Satan, and the woman. And the woman here is a representative of God's um, created beings, God's um, the, the, the people that God created in his image, which is essentially all of humanity, but... The breakdown in the in the third clause and of your offspring. Is the offspring of Satan the demonic forces? It could be, and it does include that, because Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we true believers don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our true enemy is principalities and powers and rules of darkness of this world and spiritual weakness in high places. That's our true enemy. So that's who we're wrestling against. So in one sense, the Enmity is between Satan and his evil forces, and all true believers, meaning humans that are truly saved. But in the other, in in another real sense, um, it calls it's the word. It says the offspring of of Satan. Um, Your offspring, the 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 um, the the fallen angels aren't generally thought of to be Satan's offspring. But we can borrow a hint from Yeshua's conversation with some of those unbelieving leaders of in Israel that we read about, where he says, "You are of your father the devil," right? Like John chapter six, seven, or eight, somewhere around there. He's having this heated debate with some religious Jewish leaders, and they're telling him that he has a demon, that he has a demon, and he's doing a miracles under the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, you know, Satan. And, um, you know, and that he's committing blasphemy and because he's making himself out to be God and blah, blah, blah. And and Yeshua is basically looking at him and says, you know what? You guys are of your father, the devil. And, and those, that's almost verbatim. What he says, you are of your father, the devil. So in this sense, we find humans who are likened to the offspring of Satan where this, where Satan is, is typified as the Father and they are the children, and so this is kind of in line with I believe this prophecy. So what we're seeing is that as this also fits with the wheat and the tares uh, a parable that Yeshua talked about, where God sowed uh, good seed in the field, but tares grew up among among those wheat, and they look alike. Wheat and tares look similar. So what we're talking about is um, righteous humans in the earth that God recognizes because of their genuine trust in Him. And then we have wicked people in the earth, but they're still humans. So, on the one hand, what I'm trying to say is, um, on the one hand, our real fight as believers, as righteous people, is with uh, the evil forces that are in, at operation in the world today. Satan and his minions, his his evil, uh, um, satanic um, uh, demons and things like that, um, demonic uh, uh, principalities and all this. That's our true our true battle is there. But... Those demons most often utilize human agents in this fight as well. They get humans into the bring humans into the picture. It's collateral damage, of of course, but the humans also get brought into there, and so they become part of the fight. And so, the 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 enmity between Satan's offspring and her descendant singular is obviously Yeshua. There, he Yeshua will bruise you, Satan, on the head. Speaking of the um, of the um uh. The uh, uh, crucifixion, right? Satan was bruised on the head. That's a fatal blow. By the way, when we say bruised bruised on the head, it's a fatal blow to the head, really, um, because that's what the cross represented. And you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel, right? Not a fatal blow. Where do where do where do serpents strike? Because they're so low to the ground, right on the heel. That's where you why you wear your cowboy boots, right? So the snake can't bite you in the heel. So Satan bruises the Messiah on the heel. But it's not a fatal wound, right? But Messiah bruises Satan on the head. That's a fatal blow. So at the very beginning, we're seeing this cosmic um battle between good and evil. And we're gonna see as this plays out that God um uh recognizes that Satan's starting to muster and amass people to his uh fallen ways of thinking. And so I'll close tonight with this last. Kind of teaser, and we'll pick this up next week. Remember, this is going to take a few weeks to go through these passages. In Genesis chapter 10, we have the descendants of Noah, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it's, it's, of course, recognized that all humans today descend from one of these three sons. That's just a no-brainer. That's just the way it works because God wiped out everybody else during the flood. So when Noah stepped off the ark, the three sons and their wives populated the rest of the earth and began to populate, fill up up the earth. And that's exactly what God told them. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God gave them the command, go and fill the earth. So God told Noah's sons to go and populate the earth. But as we begin to read down and we uh, begin to start reading in in, uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, and we'll read this next week, we begin to see in this section right here that I've got highlighted on my screen, that there's a group of people— that cluster together, and instead of um, branching out and populating the earth like God commanded, they decide to cluster together in defiance of God's commandment, and they decide they're going to build a name for themselves and to build a city. We'll see this language spelled out in the next chapter chapter eleven, which we're going to look at uh next week, but the beginning of this cluster group is led by a man by the name of Nimrod, and so um what I believe is happening is that we're beginning to see the 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 some of the origins of the wicked kingdoms of God of um Satan as they are going to begin to oppose God and God's righteousness and God's uh, righteous people throughout the earth. Um it, it it I I know there are some um controversial uh pushbacks to the topic that I'm talking about uh because of um some people rejecting the idea that Uh, um, uh, wickedness had this sort of beginning here. But uh, as we read uh, chapter 10 here and chapter 11, which we'll do next week, I don't see any other way to describe it, especially given God's reaction to what these people do and the descriptions that Moses recorded for us. So we'll pick that up next week, but that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Aruban Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at GraftedIn.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also um, invited to head on over to tetzetorah.com. That's my own personal tour teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H dot com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, You can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around and um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Taiti Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video like a short five-minute video on the topic uh, every day twice a day sometimes and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that I try to keep fairly busy um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website and for those of you in post-production you can see that I've got a bunch of Uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Uh, hit the bell for notifications, leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections, hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching, and make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh (laughs) via skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at com, take a moment to scroll down to the very, very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in. It's been quite a long um, famine, is what I'm calling it, um, of... Uh, of um, employment, um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat. Uh, And that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the Internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same Uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and i pray that the lord will continue to bless you out there those of you who are regular givers just absolutely um so grateful i can't express my gratitude enough at how um how thankful i am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where god's using you to bless me during this difficult time so uh, please do continue to keep giving uh, those of you who are regular givers those of you who just give me one-time gifts that's fine as well too i mean uh, god uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So, thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to Biblical Unitarianism and take the next 30 minutes or sometimes a little longer to begin to work through these passages that you see on your screen. I'm borrowing the notes for this section, a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism, we are borrowing the notes or uh, the uh, reference passages from biblicalunitarian.com, a website about God and his son Jesus Christ. Biblical Unitarian is a non Trinitarian resource. They do not believe or espouse to uh, a tripart or triune God, God in three persons. They hold to the idea that there's only one person of God, one being of God, one person of God, and um, Jesus is either merely the human agent of God, or in some cases, uh, Jesus is a deified man. He might even be the first creation of God, but as far as I can tell, biblical Unitarian holds to the idea that Jesus is is 100% human. He's not divine in any way. He didn't exist on planet Earth until Mary birthed him, is the point I'm trying to make. So we looked in the past at Genesis 1. We looked at Genesis one twenty six. We looked at Genesis 11.7. Now we're ready tonight just to begin to look at Genesis sixteen seven through 13 where we're going to be talking about the angel of the lord so let's turn to the very next uh tab that i have open here and um let's read their answer first and then i'll go back and supply some of my own details where i think a trinitarian response to this verse is more accurate because it takes the entire biblical data into account i'll say this right up front we just got through looking at excursions where Uh, A blogger argued that Unitarians often unwittingly argue like atheists, and the way in which they argue like atheists is that they approach the text from a skeptical perspective, from a doubting perspective, from a viewpoint that if uh, A, B, and C were true, then wouldn't there be um, X, Y, Z for us to observe? And that's the atheist and unbelieving worldview that says, "I would believe in God if this uh, fact were true." The un, uh, the non-Trinitarian often finds himself in that same logical mindset. Maybe not even without, maybe without even knowing it, but he often says, "Well, if Trinity were true, then this should be what the Bible says." And because I don't find a verse that says X, Y, Z. Therefore, I come to the conclusion that the Bible must not be true. And what we what we discovered last two weeks in that excursus is that that is an invalid way to approach the Bible. It's an illogical way to approach the Bible, and it's an invalid argument because it, it's based on kind of straw-man theology, a premise that's not accurate as you're building your syllogism of, of premise one, premise two, conclusion. Uh, it's an inaccurate um, way of looking at the Bible because you start with the idea that I don't really even believe what the Bible says. I reject those verses, and if if God truly were Trinity, then there would be a verse that says this. Well, we don't want to reason from the Bible that way. Let's look at Genesis 16, 7-13. Let's begin to look at the biblical Unitarian perspective first. I'll read down through it nonstop. Then I'll begin to unpack this. I think I can do this in one week. I've got a lot of resources. If I don't do this in one week, we'll just spill it over into the next week. I'm not in a hurry. You guys ready? Here we go. Genesis 17, 6, uh, 16, 7-13. Let's read the verses first. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, speaking of um Hagar, We're we're jumping right to the middle of the story, so just bear with me. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. This is the very first time the word angel of the word, the Hebrew Malach Adonai, shows up in the Bible. And so that's why we're picking on this verse. This is why Biblical Unitarian singles out this verse. At the outset, let me back up and, and prep you. The Trinitarian typically says that the angel of the Lord is a prefigured... Um, personification of Jesus of some sort. It's either Jesus in pre-incarnate form or it's simply a a strong type and shadow representative of Jesus, even if it's not um, actually Jesus before he took human form. Something like that. The Unitarian perspective is no, the angel of the Lord is just a special angel, right? or just another garden variety angel. Something like that. All right, let's read their answer. The angel. Well, first, let's read the passage. The angel of the lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, uh, the spring on the way to shore, verse eight. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. Verse nine. The angel of the lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Verse ten. The angel of the lord also said to her. I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Verse 10, 11, The angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Verse 12, He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. And then the final verse, verse 13, So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, for she said, I have really seen God and remained alive after seeing him, or have I really seen God remained alive after seeing him? Question mark. It can go as a statement or a question because there's no punctuation in Hebrew. All right. So that was from the NRSV version of the Bible. Let's read their answer. By the way, notice uh, very carefully, if you didn't catch it, the angel of the Lord speaks in first person as if he's God in verse 10, right? He says, I will greatly multiply. Um, And then he speaks in third person. Uh, He says, for the Lord has given you in verse 11. Um, And then in verse 13, um, the woman that's interacting with the angel, uh, the Bible says, so she named the Lord who spoke to her. That's Moses' uh, editorial comment. But then he quotes her as saying, you are El Royi. Uh, for she either says or asks, have I seen God? She doesn't say, have I seen an angel? So it's an interesting interchange, no matter which position you take. All right, let's read uh biblical Unitarian's perspective. Uh, number one, they've got these broken down into, um, points point. Number one, it's believed by some Trinitarians that in the old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ before he supposedly incarnated as a human. This point is disputed by many and with good reason. There's not a single verse that actually says that Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord. right? The entire doctrine is built from assumption. Why then, they say, if the doctrine is not stated, do so many people believe it? The reason is that it is very awkward for Trinitarians to believe that Jesus is co-equal and co-eternal with God from the beginning of time, and yet he never appeared in the Old Testament. They continue... Since one cannot miss the active role that Jesus plays today as head of the church, it is possible that he could have been, I'm sorry, um, is it possible that he could have been around throughout the entire Old Testament and yet never have gotten involved with mankind? Okay, they're asking. They continue, a Trinitarian answer to this question is to place Jesus in the Old Testament by assumption. He must be the angel of the Lord. Right. That's what they think is the Trinitarian assumption. They continue. however. We answer the question by asserting that this is very strong evidence for our position that Jesus Christ did not yet exist during the Old Testament, but was the plan of God for the salvation of man. Right? Notice they don't give Jesus um, a cre- uh, either creative status, creator status, equal with God status, or even existence status. Rather, in the mind of God, God thought from eternity to pass. I will bring Jesus into the picture someday. I will um, allow him to come onto planet earth as he's born through the womb of Mary Jesus existed in the plan, in the mind of God from the very beginning. That's their perspective. So they think that Jesus did not yet exist during the old Testament. What was the plan of God for the salvation of man? They continue. We believe that physically he began when God impregnated Mary, Matthew eight, one Um, Exactly what are the reasons trinitarians say that the angel lord is Jesus? Trinitarians differ on the points of evidence which is to be expected when working from assumptions, but the that's their their insert, but they say the standard reasons are and here they list some of them. He seems superior to other angels, he is separate from the lord, he is able to forgive sins per Exodus 23:21. He speaks with authority as though he were god. Continuing, his countenance struck awe in people. He was never seen after Jesus' birth. This is speaking of the angel of the Lord, by the way. He was never seen after Jesus' birth. And most importantly, he is addressed as God himself, right? Notice in the exchange above that in one place, he speaks in first person as God. And then the final verse, verse 13, the woman Hagar actually um, says that I've seen God and I'm still alive, and Moses even says she named the name of the Lord that she saw there. So um, he's given identification as God. So um, the uh, biblical Unitarian continues and says, so he's addressed as God himself. All these points will be considered, and we'll start with the last, which is the most essential point of the argument, the idea that he is addressed as God. They're going to hit that one first, because that, that seems to be the slam-dunk um answer to the non-Trinitarian that, hey, how do you explain, how do we explain, we Trinitarians, how do we explain the fact that the text calls him God and he speaks in first person as God if it isn't truly God? And guess what? I'll tell you right from in advance, that actually is a very strong argument. It's, it's a strong argument that if you only use the Old Testament, in my opinion, would it be strong enough to make a case that the angel of the Lord is divine, that he's fully God, <clears throat> therefore it must be a manifestation of God, either a theophany, a Christophany, or a the. Uh, there's another fancy term I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, in uh, a physical manifestation of the otherwise invisible uh, God who is a spirit. But the good news is we don't have to just rely on the Old Testament. We also have the New Testament, and we're going to look at that tonight if we have time. So let's look at their um, counterpoints, uh, their rejection of Trinity is uh, point number two. A study of the appearances of the angel of the Lord reveal that sometimes he is addressed as the angel and sometimes he's addressed as the Lord or God. And they tell you to reference Genesis 16:13 and Judges 6, 16. The Jewish law of agency. Now, let me just interject for a second. This is actually one of the trump cards that they pull all the time. They, the non-Trinitarians, they love to pull the agency card. Not only does it show up in rabbinic literature, the agency card that we're going to describe here, they're going to describe it as shaliach, that's the Hebrew word, but it also, from from their perspective, neatly describes and gives them an, an exit, an out, for describing not just the angel of the Lord in relation to God, but describing Jesus himself in relation to God, and demonstrating supposedly how they are two separate beings, two separate persons, two separate entities, and therefore Jesus cannot be God, nor can the angel of the Lord be God, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So listen up very closely. This is a very, very popular um, argument that's used against Trinitarian theology, and we'll begin to refute it later on. But in, in, what we're going to find is, in the end, it's not even necessary to fully refute it. All we have to do is actually take it to an extreme to see how it has some fatal flaws. But let's first define it. The Jewish law of agency explains why this is so. According to the Jewish understanding of agency, the agent was regarded as the person himself. This is well expressed in the Encyclopedia of the Jewish Religion. So, let's um let's allow them to quote from the uh Encyclopedia of Jewish Religion under the um article entitled agent or the Hebrew's shaliach, shaliach. All right? Um, By the way, that's the Hebrew word shaliach. The Greek equivalent would be something like apostolos, from from where we get our English word apostle. The word in English, shaliach, can be understood as messenger, someone sent on behalf of someone else. So that's what what's uh, going on. The word angel itself, uh, the the English word angel, is rooted in the um, Greek word um, angelos, which is similar to the Greek word apostolos, which also means messenger or sent one, uh, something to that affects. So shaliach, the main point of the Jewish law of agency, is expressed in the dictum quote, and this is a quote from the Talmud, the Jewish source of rabbinic wisdom that's been um, collected. Uh, through the ages and has been put together in a book in two forms: Babylonian Talmud and Jerusalem Talmud. So we got the here's a quote from one of the uh, chapters out of the Talmud. A person's agent is regarded as the person himself. End quote. And we have the reference there from the, the the chapter in the Talmud. In fact, two references there, two two chapters there, two tractates. Um. End quote. So, uh, Biblical Unitarian reminds us, or this is still a quote from their lift from the uh, the, the article on Sheliach out of the Jewish encyclopedia. Therefore, any act committed by a duly appointed agent is regarded as having been committed by the principal who therefore bears full responsibility for it with consequent complete absence of liability on the part of the agent. And the footnote there points to the Jewish encyclopedia source. So what they're saying basically is, is that the angel of the Lord can speak in first person as God and act on God's behalf as if he truly is God because he is the agent of God. Even though he's not really God, he's the agent of God, but he's given full authority to speak in first person as God and to do actions that would be accredited as if God himself were doing those things. Now, in reality, this description of agency is accurate. We see it both in the Tanakh as well as in the New Testament. There are places, for instance, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of John, I think it's around John chapter 3 or 4, very early on in John, I believe, where um, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus is is, um, uh, baptizing and making many, many disciples. And then in parentheses, the writer puts, although Jesus himself is not doing the baptizing, and so, what we're seeing is this kind of agency fashion. The disciples of Jesus are baptizing in Jesus' name, but Jesus is the one getting the credit for in that in that um, passage where it talks about uh, Jesus is is baptizing. It even says Jesus is baptizing, but it's not Jesus who's doing the baptizing. So, in agency fashion, we see that Jesus is giving the credit. This is all over the place. When Moses spoke before Pharaoh, God told him that he would be that God would make Pharaoh as very God in front of Pharaoh. It's kind of agency fashion. Uh, you go ahead and speak and don't say that. Um, you don't have to always say that God said this, God said that, although God Moses did do that in many places. But Pharaoh is to understand that as you speak, it's my mouth speaking. Whatever comes out of your mouth, Moses, is what comes out of my mouth, basically. So you can speak in first person if you want, Moses, right? Um, just Pharaohs just to understand that it's me speaking, so don't worry. So, the law of agency is an accurate, um, ex- it's a real phenomenon that exists. It's In other words, a biblical Unitarianism is not making this up. The rabbis of antiquity in the Talmud didn't make this idea up. It's not some fabrication of the rabbis in this case. However, what we're going to find out when I begin to um, refute this or rebut it is we're going to find out that the law of agency can be taken to an extreme. And in some cases, if we don't draw the a, a, a distinction where we need to, then we actually destroy the principle and we're only left with the agent. And then we're in trouble, right? Because the purpose of the agency is to represent the principle, the principle being the king or God, in this case, the agent being the angel of the Lord or Jesus in this case, whatever. So let's keep reading their answer. In the text in which the angel is called God or the Lord, it's imperative to notice that he is always identified as an angel. This point is important. By the way, again, um, they want you to believe almost that it's the word angel in its normative sense. And this is somewhat true because the word angel most popularly in the Bible refers to the created beings that uh, serve God and are ministering servants to uh, mankind as well. Of which a third of them are fallen angels, right? we're talking about created beings, they're lesser than God, but they're more powerful than humans. That's the normative use of the word angel, the Hebrew word malach" and the Greek word um uh, angelas, from where we get the English word angel. however, the word the word angel and the concept of angel, even both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, is more generically, also just messenger. So that's helpful to keep in mind as we understand that God sends messengers. Messengers can be angelic messengers, i.e. supernatural, or they can be human messengers, like Jesus is a human messenger. And throughout the Old Testament, we see humans being sent on the behalf of other humans, and the Hebrew word chosen for messenger is many times the word that we would translate ordinarily as angel. So they're not saying that here in this in this part, but I want you to realize that. So um, it's imperative to that he's always identified as an angel. The reason that's imper- imperative for them is because they're trying to draw this dichotomy, a difference between God is not an angel, and Jesus is definitely not an angel, but the angel of the Lord is just an angel. My point is that the angel of the Lord is not merely an angel. He is a messenger, and Jesus is a messenger, and therefore, when we're talking about messenger, we can begin to realize that God shows up in theophany form as his own messenger, and yet it is God. We're gonna read about that in Genesis 18, eventually, where God shows up like I'm looking like a man, but, it, but the text talks about angels, and it talks about men, and it talks about God, and all three words are used, and we have to make sense of that passage. So, um, they go on to say, sorry, I don't mean to keep uh, interrupting. I should just read their answer first. This point is important, they say, because God is never called an angel. God is God. Well, actually, they're not quite right here. They say God is never called an angel. Um, no, God is, is called an angel by humans. He's. Um, we'll see this in uh, a text that I'm going to bring up if we have time. So if a being is called God, but it's clearly identified as an angel, there must be a reason. I also want to let you know that when we get to the book of Hebrews, which I hope to get to tonight, I might not, the the writer to the book of Hebrews takes great pains to explain to us readers that Jesus is greater than angels. So even if we say that the angel of the Lord is Jesus, we have to stop at some point in time and realize that Jesus is not an angel. He's greater than angels. So therefore, he, we can't say that the angel of the Lord is Jesus in the truest sense of the word. That Jesus is that would equate Jesus with an angel. Jesus is more than an angel. He's greater than angels. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews makes a, a great point in pointing out to us, he, uh, pointing out for us and teaching us. At the same time, as we understand the New Testament in its normative, literal sense, Jesus the man wasn't brought onto planet Earth until he came out of Mary's womb. Therefore, the pre-incarnate picture that we're seeing here in the Old Testament is not a human thing. It's not a human being. So whatever the angel of the lord is it sh- it cannot be a human for a couple of reasons number 1 angels aren't humans even though they look like humans their comp- their composition is is more than human right it's meta human it's it's more powerful than human in fact the, the proof is that they can show up suddenly and then step into a pillar of fire and then go up into uh, go up into heaven right like like the uh, the angel did with um uh, get Gid- what is it with the uh uh um uh, uh samson's parents right he stepped into the fire and disappeared well so angels are not human beings jesus is a human being so there's two very good reasons why jesus isn't why the angel of the lord in one sense cannot be jesus number one jesus is greater than angels so no matter who the angel of the lord is jesus is greater than any angel right category class angel and number two jesus is truly human he's fully human he's truly human He's 100% human like me. Therefore, the angel, he's in a different being class category. So those are two reasons we need to think about. All right, I'll 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 stop commenting and just read their answer. This is important because God is never called an angel. God is God. So if a being is called God but is clearly identified as an angel, there must be a reason. In the record in Genesis quoted above, the angel is clearly identified as an angel four separate times. Why then would the text say that the Lord spoke to her? It does so, here's their answer, because of God's agent or messenger. The angel was speaking for God, and the message he brought was God's message. The same basic idea is expressed when God, quote-unquote, is said to visit, quote-unquote, his people, when actually he sends some form of blessing. And they, they refer you to the notes on Luke seven sixteen. God himself does not show up, but someone unfamiliar with the culture might conclude from the wording that he did. Also, some of the people to whom the angel appeared clearly expressed their belief he was an angel of God. Gideon exclaimed, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. By the way, by comparison, that's Judges 6.22. By comparison, uh, Hagar did not say, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. She said, I saw God face to face, and yet I lived. And there are other people who talk about seeing God. Um... They conclude, or they continue, there's conclusive biblical evidence that God's messengers and representative are called God. See the notes on Hebrew 1.8. This is important because if representatives of God are called God, then the way to distinguish God from his representative is by the context. Now, I'll give them that, right? Context is always king. We have already shown that when the angel of the Lord is called God, the context is careful to let the reader know that the angel is in fact an angel. All right. Point number three, another piece of evidence, they say, that reveals that the angel of the Lord is an angel and not a co-equal member of the Trinity is that he's under the command of the Lord. In one record, David disobeyed God and a plague came on the land. And uh, the quote says, God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. First Chronicles 21, 15. We learn from the record that it was the angel of the Lord afflicting the people and eventually, quote, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. 2 Samuel 24, 16. These verses, they say, are not written as if this angel was somehow God himself. There's no co-equality here. This is simply the Lord giving commands to one of his angels. Point number four by BiblicalUnitarian.com Another clear example showing that the angel of the Lord cannot be God in any way is in Zechariah. Zechariah was speaking with the angel about a vision he had. The Bible records, quote, Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how, lo- how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The me, of course, there is Zechariah, and the reference is Zechariah 1, 12, and 13. They point out, this is uh, biblical Unitarianism, the fact that the angel of the Lord asked the Lord for information and then received comforting words indicates that he is not co-equal with God in power or knowledge. It is unthinkable that God would need information or need comforting words. Thus, any claim that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, who is in every way God, just cannot be made to fit what the Bible actually says. Point five. It is interesting that two pieces of evidence that Trinitarians use to prove that the angel of the Lord must be the pre-incarnate Jesus are that the Bible clearly states that he is separate from God and that he speaks with God's authority. We would argue that they they continue. We would argue that the reason he is separate from God is because he's clearly that. I'm sorry, he's clearly what the text calls him, i.e., an angel, and that he speaks with authority because he's bringing a message from God. So they're talking about the angel of the Lord when they say he is an angel. They're not talking about Jesus there. The prophets and others they say who spoke for God also spoke with authority, as many verses affirm. Also, the angel of the Lord speaks about God in third person. For example, they reference Genesis 16, 11 above. The angel says, quote, the Lord has heard your misery, end quote. The angel does not say, quote, I have heard of your misery, as if he were God. Again, yes, if we only looked at one verse, then he does speak in uh, first person as if he's God. Um, I'm sorry, he speaks in third person, but earlier in the passage, he speaks in first person, so it's almost like they're trying to get you not to see the entire passage. Um, they go on to say in Genesis twenty-two twelve, the angel said, quote, "Now I know that you fear God, not quote, now I know you fear me." We're gonna when we get to Genesis twenty-two because they're gonna bring it up again and we're gonna look at it again. That's the exchange between uh, Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar. We're gonna find again, as with this exchange with Hagar. There are times when the angel speaks as God, and there are times when the angel speaks in third person, uh, as the, or speaks of God in third person, times as first person. So we'll, have to, we'll deal with that text when the time comes. In Judges 13.5, this is the reference I mentioned earlier about Samson, the angel says, Samson will be set apart to God. He's speaking to Samson's parents. The angel will be set apart to God, not set apart to me. So although the text can call the angel God, which is proper for a representative of God, the angel never said that he was god and even referenced referred to god in the third person actually there is a reference where i'll show you where the angel does say i am the lord All right we'll find that we'll look at that in a moment or not maybe not tonight but in time um maybe tonight maybe next week at least where we're dealing with this angel of lord this might go one week or two weeks it might even go three weeks but i'm spending a little bit more time on this because this is one of the predominant and very strong um trinitarian versus unitarian arguments the angel of the lord they con- continue, also, if Jesus were the angel of the Lord who um, spoke to Moses at the burning bush, then he did not say so in his teaching. Mark twelve twenty six records Jesus speaking with the Sadducees and saying, have you, and this is a quote from Jesus, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and quote, and so they remind you, this is biblical Unitarianism, they remind you, if Jesus had been the angel in the bush and was openly proclaiming himself to be, quote, the preexistent God, end quote, he would have used this opportunity to say, quote, right, you ready? Notice, notice let me pause, let me interject. Notice their argumentation mindset. Notice the way in which they're reading. If X, Y, Z is, I'm sorry, if ABC is true, then shouldn't we see X, Y, Z? Notice that's very similar to the way that atheists argues against the existence of God. They say, if Jesus had been the angel of the bush, in the bush. And again, this is really, in my opinion, in my experience, a wrong-headed way of approaching the text. I don't stand in judgment of the text. It's almost as if I'm pointing my bony finger at God and saying, God, if you're you're right, if you're correct, if you're God, and if your word is accurate— Then why don't I see these words? As if God is obligated to write the way that I think he should write. As if God and Jesus are obligated to act the way that I think they should act. Right? That's illogical, people. Don't think that. What we must do is we must read the Bible and take what the text says as the final authority. God is the authoritative party here. He says what he says. He means what he means. He acts what he acts because he's God. He chooses the words that he that he says. He chooses the actions that he performs. He keeps his own counsel. He doesn't he doesn't confer with me and say, Ariel, what's the best way that I should write? What 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 way do you think would be the most convincing? Which way would be the the more logical way to to pin the words? Ariel, which way should I act that's more convincing to you? He doesn't confer with me. He doesn't ask me. He doesn't get my permission to write the way he wants to write or act the way he wants to act. No, he's God. He's almighty. His words are his words. So he writes what he wants. He acts the way he wills because he's God and, of course, all of his words are righteous and all of his actions are righteous. So, what that means is what when I encounter his words and his actions, they stand in judgment of me, not the other way around. Please stop judging the Bible. Let the Bible judge you. You don't judge the Bible. So, stop saying if Jesus had been the angel in the bush and was openly proclaiming himself to be the pre existent God, he would have used this opportunity to say, Right? If ABC, then XYZ. It doesn't work that way, people. It doesn't work that way. It is the way it is because God made it the way it is. And I then have to deal with the data. I have to deal with the existing um, information that's in front of me and say, hmm, okay, that's peculiar. I don't understand why God did it that way understand exactly where he's going with that statement or that action. But since he's God and he's perfect, it must be the right thing to do and the right thing to say. And then I begin to pray about and, and chew on and meditate on um, the thing that I'm dealing with. But in no way in shape and form do I have permission to say, that can't be right because if it were true and then fill in the blank with whatever presupposition that I bring to the table or whatever objection based on what I think it should look like. So go back and listen to the last two weeks on, on this um, series, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So notice, the biblical Unitarian is doing this right again. Again, if Jesus had been the angel in the bush and was openly proclaiming himself to be the preexistent God, then what Jesus should have said was, quote, I said to Moses, end quote. Right? That's the way we read the Bible. If if, if Jesus was God, then why didn't he say it in so many terms? If God is, is really God... Then why doesn't he? Uh, if he's tripart, why doesn't he say it right up front? Why doesn't he say, um, "I am God, I am three, I am one, but I'm you know those types of illogical um, um, objections." Let's continue. The fact that Jesus said, "I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on my soapbox there. I just couldn't couldn't resist." We are not going to get into my own uh, passage tonight. I'm going to finish reading their um, objection, and then I'll close tonight because I'm already uh, into my. Uh, I'm already. Uh, used up my 30 minutes that I allot for this uh, section. So we'll we'll deal with this tonight, and then next week we'll begin to look at, we'll turn straight into my own uh, response to their objection. So let's finish their um, uh, explanation about the angel of the Lord first. The fact that Jesus said it was God who spoke to Moses shows clearly that he was differentiating himself from God. And then um, point number six, which I think, nope six, seven... 678. You know what? I don't want to go too fast. Let's let's just slow down. Let's pick this up next week. I I I was gonna read all of theirs uh and uh pick up with mine next week, but we'll start with um we'll start with their point number six next week. That'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Baba I bless your name. Abba, I'm thankful for your words. I'm thankful for your Holy Spirit. And I'm most thankful for your Shua, your son, who came and did the impossible. He died a sinner's death, even though he was the righteous one. He died in my place so that I can be counted as righteous before you. Something that by my standards and by my reckoning and by my effort was impossible. Because I could never attain to your standards. I could never reach up to the per- to the perfect Um, standard of righteousness that is demanded by your holiness, but Jesus stepped into my place and became my advocate. He became the perfect sacrifice when I couldn't offer a perfect sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for sending your Holy spirit to remind me of the words of the master and to fill me with his goodness and with his mercy and to draw me into a fellowship, not just with you, but into a fellowship with other fellow believers. Thank you for the studies that we're undertaking during these uh, hour and a half long live study sessions, the um, uh, eschatology study at the first part and this Trinity study at the second part. I'm so blessed to be able to share these notes with the other students around the world, people in YouTube land, people in iTunes iTunes land and and on the internet. Um, The topics are challenging and they challenge me each and every week. I don't have all the answers, but I know you do. And so I'm just going to continue to trust in you and rely on Uh, what you've given me as your words, which are the final authoritative answer to these particular topics. Continue to uh, carry us along, Lord, by your power and by your Spirit. Protect us, provide for us, and raise us up, and we'll we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.